Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Church here in Brighton. Uh, I trust you're well and that you've had a good week and you're looking forward to being with us tonight uh, to hear the word of God and to come before the Lord in worship and prayer. Don't forget you can listen to all our services, all our teaching on our website and you can also join our prayer meeting on Wednesdays at 7.45 online. So please contact us if you would like to be part of that. We're going to sing our first hymn, which will be up on the screen if you're watching this as a video. And if you're listening to this in audio, the, the, um, the word should be attached as a PDF. So this song is Seek Ye First, the Kingdom of God, based on the words of Jesus, which talks about the importance of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So let's sing.
Now let me lead you in prayer. Dear Lord, we, we thank you and praise you that we have the opportunity to be together this day. Lord, of course, once again, we cannot physically be in the same room as each other, but we are gathered in spirit as we acknowledge our oneness and our unity as Christian people and as members of this church. We pray, Father, you would bless our time together. We pray you'd help us as we come to your word, and we pray that you would help us as we sing your praises and turn our hearts upon you this evening. I want to pray, Lord, that you would help us to, in our lives, to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We know that all these other things that we need in this life will be given to us, will be provided for us if we seek you first. We pray you would help us to do that. We pray that you would forgive us our sins, and I pray, Father, particularly that you would Continue to lay on our hearts anything which is not pleasing to you, which you would have us confess to you and turn away from and repent of. I want to particularly thank you, Lord, for the commemoration we had yesterday, VE Day. We think about the, the folly of war and the tragedy of war and the suffering that took place all those years ago in the cause of freedom. And we also want to thank you, Lord, for delivering this country and many countries, Lord, from tyranny. We do pray, Lord, as as one of our popular songs says, may this land that we love so well in dignity and freedom dwell. We pray, Lord, this land would dwell in freedom and dignity, but most of all in righteousness. Remember the words of the proverb which says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach for any people. We, we confess, Lord, that this land has not been faithful to you by and large. And, Lord, we do deserve your judgment. But we pray, Lord, in judgment you would remember mercy, that this land would be once again a place where your gospel goes out and is received and where people turn to the Lord Jesus and where righteousness and the, the ways of the kingdom, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven would be will be seen all around us. We pray, Lord, for those places in the world today where there are still wars and conflicts. We know, Lord, it's not realistic, Lord, to expect that there should be no conflict at all in this world until the Lord Jesus comes again. But we do look forward to that age when when he he will come reign and there will be no more suffering, war, or any of these things that afflict human beings. But we do pray, Lord, that if it please you that you would bring an end to conflicts around the world and you would relieve human suffering we pray lord for our church community particularly lord at this time i want to lift up to you those lord that are struggling that are finding things difficult for whom things are getting on top of them and i pray particularly lord that you would draw close to them help them lord not to lose heart and, and despair and give up but rather lord look to you for mercy and grace at this time of need I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read in Matthew's Gospel again this week. Matthew 22. 
verses 1 to 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Pray, Father, as we come to your word now, that you would help us to understand what you would have us understand from these verses, from this parable. I pray that you'd encourage us Challenge us, whatever you would be pleased to do. Help me now as I bring the word to your people. Amen. Don't know if you've ever watched a soap opera wedding in your life. Um, I haven't watched soap operas for years and years. I never really ever liked them. But it seems to me every time you see a wedding on a soap opera, there's always some kind of ludicrous absurd storyline taking place so at the wedding someone gets punched or there's some terrible revelation about the bridegroom you find out he's actually he's actually the bride's brother or something like that some kind of really ludicrous crazy unrealistic soapy kind of situation the wedding we read about in this parable is a bit like that it's got all the elements of a soap opera it's got, it's got guests who refuse to come. It's got a fire, retribution. It's got a load of random people brought in. It's got a gate crasher. It's got a murder or murders. And I think that's intentional because the parables of Jesus are often quite absurd. They're often They're based on real-life situations and plausible situations, but the way they're presented are often quite unbelievable. And that was true at the time of Jesus when he told these parables. The people who heard them would would have raised their eyebrows, I think. They would have said, this is an absolutely unbelievable situation. People don't act like that in real life. 
And that the people would, would be like, you know, fish on the end of a hook, on the end of a line. They would be drawn in emotionally into these stories and hanging on every word of Jesus. And people would say, you know, nobody would behave like this in real life. It's just absolutely absurd, unbelievable. And then Jesus would imply or would say, actually, actually, that's exactly what you're like. That's exactly what you're doing. And he would make his point in that way. Why does Jesus tell another parable? Well, last week we had the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, which was talking about the obligation that Israel had before God to bring him his due. This week's parable, although similar in some ways, has a slightly different emphasis. I think the emphasis in this parable is on the blessings which God was offering to Israel, which they were turning their backs on. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And what Jesus does is that he deliberately evokes the Old Testament, Old Testament imagery of the messianic banquet. We find this alluded to in, in numerous places in the Old Testament, but perhaps the clearest reference to this is in Isaiah 25, verse 6. And I'll quote this verse to you. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So the hope of Israel was that one day Messiah would come and he would usher in this, this glorious epoch of unprecedented blessing to the nation. So he would bring this golden age of freedom from their oppressors, deliverance, lasting peace, material abundance, prosperity. And all this was symbolized by this idea of God laying on this lavish feast for his people with the best food and the best wine. You know, for, for a Jewish person, this would have been the epitome, the highest and best event imaginable. God laying on this feast for his people. Once a man said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I don't think there would have been a single Israelite who would have disagreed with that statement. They all wanted to be there at the feast when, when Messiah came and brought in this glorious golden age. But Jesus deliberately picks up this feat of the messianic banquet and he makes it into a royal wedding. Now, we need to explain something about the culture in those days. So these days, when you get an invite to a wedding... It always tells you an exact time and place that you need to go to. So, for example, you get an invitation from your friends. They say, come to St. Michael's Church in, in Middleton-on-the-Marsh at 2 p.m. on Saturday the 12th of August. And there's a reception at the Royal Oak Country Club at 7 p.m. or something like that. So you know exactly when and where the wedding will take place. And, of course, you... You go to the wedding and you, you get stuck by, behind a tractor in some country lane and you, you get lost in a field in Dorset somewhere. But in the, at the time of Jesus, when a rich person 
organised a feast, there would have been a two-stage invitation process. Now, we need to understand, this is an Eastern culture that Jesus is living in. And for them, rigid timekeeping was far less important than it is for us. And of course, they didn't have clocks and timepieces that we have today. So they were far more relaxed about these things than we are. What, what the rich person would have done, what the king would have done in the story, he would have sent out a preliminary invitation to, to, his, to, the, to the people he wanted to come to the wedding, to his friends. He would have invited them and given them a rough idea of the time that the wedding would take place without giving the exact time. And everybody understood that there would be a message sent out to them when the feast was ready, telling them to come to the banquet. We pick up the story, don't we? When the king's servants have gone out with this second part of the invitation, this message to come, because now everything was ready. Everything had been prepared. Think about it. Who wouldn't want to attend a royal wedding, the wedding of the king's son? Not only was it the greatest honour to have been invited, but you would have had the very best that the king could offer. So you can imagine a wedding of, those, of that magnitude, a king putting on the best food, the best music, the best wine, laughter, rejoicing, dancing, fun. It was, was the party of the year. If it had been an all-ticket event, people would have paid extraordinary sums, exorbitant sums to gain entry to that wedding. And those that hadn't been invited would have been green with envy, I think. If you'd been invited to the royal wedding at the time of Jesus, you would have been waiting on the edge of your seat, no doubt, dressed up in all your finery, looking out the window, waiting for the servants to come to tell you, give you the message, come, everything is ready, and you'd have been extremely excited, anticipating this wonderful event that you've been honoured to have been invited to. But not these guests in this story. Jesus says a very shocking thing. He says, they refuse to come. They refuse to come. The king in the story perhaps wonders if they've got the message correctly. Look at verse 4. So he sends out some more servants. And these servants go to the guests and they, they explain in great detail. They, they lay out in, in explicit terms, in the clearest possible terms, what the guests could expect from the wedding. They talk about the oxen and the fattened calf. The, the best meats and the finest wines had been laid out. Everything was ready. And then he issues a final call, a bit like when you're in the airport and you're running for a flight and you hear over the tannoy, this is the last call for the flight to Kiev, and then you, you just make it on time. The king offers the final call. He says, come to the wedding banquet. Now, just as in the parable of the talents, the servants here, of course, represent the many prophets that God had sent over the years, over the centuries, foretelling the coming kingdom, calling the people to righteousness, predicting, foretelling the coming of Messiah, 
calling the people to be ready. And of course, the last of those prophets was John the Baptist. And then, of course, Jesus himself came. He was the prophet from among their people, a prophet like Moses that they should have listened to. And he comes. And I want you to think about the extraordinary, the the, the urgency and imminence in the message of Jesus. Jesus said in, in Mark 1 verse 15, this was his message, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the message of Jesus is a bit like the message of those servants. He's saying, now is the time. Come, come, come. Now is the time. The kingdom of God is near. Going back to the story, even after the servants had had portrayed using words the, the lavish feast that was waiting for them that could have been theirs, it says the servants... In verse 5, paid no attention. They made light of the offer. Have you noticed that one goes off to his field, another goes off to his business? This is actually quite strange when you think about it. None of those issues, none of those concerns was urgent. All those things could have waited. And remember, these, these guests had already agreed long before to come to the wedding. I think these are just excuses. They're not legitimate reasons not to come. Perhaps even they were, in a sense, mocking the king, showing contempt for the king, saying to him, well, you know, sorry, we've got better things to do than come to your son's wedding. What about this? What if they'd even agreed on purpose to come to the wedding? They'd accepted the invitation knowing full well that they were going to refuse it just to make a mockery of the king. Imagine a wedding like this without any guests. The day would have been ruined. People would have been gossiping about it, talking about it for years to come. The king would have been a laughingstock. Just like the people in the other parable, they promised to obey. They promised to come. But they weren't actually doing the will of God. One of my friends in the church, I won't say who it is, but perhaps you can guess, he used to do this thing. So I'd go up to shake his hand when that was still allowed. I'd extend my hand to him like this. And as I did it, he would put his hand out like this, as if to shake my hand. Then he would do this. And he was, he was only joking. Well, I think he was anyway. This is a similar gesture of contempt and disrespect to the king. Friends, nobody in their right mind would have refused an invitation like this. Such an honour, such a wonderful feast, such a great occasion. Even if you didn't care much for the king, for the sake of the occasion, for the sake of the honour, surely you would have gone to a feast like this to enjoy all the good things about it. But I think the real reason... They didn't go. It's not because they were more concerned about their fields, not because they were concerned about their business, not because they had better things to do, but because actually they hated the king very much. They weren't even willing to put up with being in his presence in order to get all the blessings and benefits of the feast. Friends, people make all sorts of excuses, don't they, about not believing in the Lord Jesus, not accepting the gospel not becoming Christians. 
And it's true that for many people, the things of this world can seem much more pressing, much more important, and much more enjoyable. But I don't want to be in any, any doubt about this. The real reason, the underlying reason that people don't come to the Lord Jesus is not because they really have more important matters to attend to. The underlying reason I submit to you from the word of God is that people actually hate God. They hate the Lord Jesus. They have nothing but contempt for him. They don't want him. They don't want to come near him. They don't want to obey him. Think about the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. God is hand, holding out to people, inviting people, people to participate, to partake of the most unimaginable blessing. And yet people turn their backs on him. And they also persecute those that he sends to them. Now, going back to the story, these servants, their rebellion, their hostility gets even worse in verse 6. Because not only do they pay no attention to the summons, to to the, the invitation, but actually they start to mistreat the servants. Remember when David helped out Nabal, the rich fool, and David did so much for him. And when he asked Nabal to be generous to him, Nabal repaid good with evil. And that's exactly what's happening here. The king had sought to bless these people and honour these people. And to all intents and purposes, what they do is declare war on the king. Some people believe that, actually. This was actually a symbol, a gesture of declaring war, an act of hostility by refusing this invitation. All this, of course, is a picture of what Israel was about to do to God's holy servant, Jesus, a few days after he spoke these words, when it put him on a cross and killed him. They should have received him gladly, bringing in good news of the kingdom, inviting them to come. And they rejected him and they killed him, just as they'd done to all the other prophets before him. How does the king react to this hostility? It says in verse 7, the king was enraged. So he gets his army and they go and burn down the city and kill all his enemies. And as I mentioned last week, this is probably a picture of the fall of Jerusalem 40 years later. One of the worst massacres in history. It's also a reminder that one day God will burn up the whole earth and destroy his enemies and those that have rejected him. But the king is gracious and the king is merciful and the king wants guests to come and enjoy this wedding feast. So what does he do in verse 9? He sends his servants. Let's look at verse 8. He said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants go out and they, they go to the corners of the streets. They go and they gather people and say, would you like to come to the banquet? The king's having having a a royal banquet. Come along. And all these people, probably to their amazement, come to the banquet. 
And they gather a mixture of people, good and bad people, all sorts of people. And the wedding hall is filled with guests, as it should have been. What's going on here? What does this symbolize? Well, of course, we read in Acts 13, verse 46, when Paul is talking to the Jews who rejected the gospel, rejected the Lord Jesus. He said, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. So it was right that Jesus and his apostles should go first and foremost to the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the people that had been invited to the kingdom. They went to them and they proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed the kingdom. But there's this idea, isn't there, of not being worthy, not deserving. And Paul picks that up in Acts. Of course, nobody is worthy to come into the kingdom. But these leaders of Israel and the Jewish nation in general had made themselves unworthy. They disqualified themselves from the privileges and blessings that could have been theirs because of their unbelief and rejection of the Son. And so, because of this, because the Lord must have his church, the king opens up his hall to all sorts of people. And God opens up his kingdom to all sorts of people. We've already seen, haven't we, that tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who put their faith in Jesus and repented and and received him, they were welcomed gladly into the kingdom, whilst those that should have entered were shut out and disqualified because of their lack of faith and their unbelief. As as we've just read, this is also a picture of the Gentiles, and I mentioned this last week. In Matthew 8, earlier in the Gospel, when this centurion comes to Jesus and shows faith in him, Jesus makes a comment about this wedding feast. He predicts that many will come from the east and west, will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first will be last and the last will be first. We see an echo of of the the, the king's message to the servants to go and bring in all sorts of people when Jesus gives his disciples the great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Go to the street corners and invite anyone who can find. The only qualification is that you're willing to come. And there's an anticipation that the Gentiles will listen. They will receive the Lord, some of them anyway. Paul says that in the end of Acts, God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Jesus himself said he had other sheep, not of this sheepfold that he must bring. And of course we have that wonderful picture in Revelation, don't we, of this wonderful multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation and language, you know, being brought together, worshipping the lamb that purchased them with his blood. Of course, this is, this is not a new idea. It's not God's plan B because even, even when we look at his promises to Abraham, he promised that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. It was always God's plan that 
People from all nations should be included in his kingdom. But think about these, these people that have been invited to this wedding banquet, this ragtag, ragbag bunch of misfits, all sorts of people that have been brought in. They had no claim to be there. They didn't have any prior relationship with the king. You can imagine how delighted and amazed they must have been to have been included. You're just going about your business one day, walking down London Road, and somebody invites you to a royal banquet at the Royal Pavilion. And it's the best day of your life. What am I doing here? Can this really be happening? And I wonder, do we, do we ever get like that as Christians? Do we ever stop to, to, to sit back and think, consider the, the amazing blessings that God has given us? Do you ever ask yourself this question, why me, Lord? Why me? How is it that I, who was far away from you, who wasn't seeking you, I was, I was dead in my sins. I didn't know you, I didn't care about you. I was living without hope, without God in the world. I was far away from you, cut off from you. How is it that now I find myself a Christian? How is it I find myself a fellow citizen with God's people and a member of his household? Of course, the answer is, it's by grace we've been saved. Just as in this story, these people were not seeking to go to the banquet but the banquet was open to them. There was a call to this banquet. So God seeks people that are not seeking him, and he opens the door, and he brings them in. He he compels them to come in. He invites them in. He draws them to his banquet. We who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And there is no reason for this except God is gracious. How is it I'm a Christian? Because God has been gracious to me. That's the only reason. We should stop to stand in wonder that we should have been included, and yet we are included by grace. Really, there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who reject the gospel, reject the invitation to come to the kingdom, and those who find themselves wonderfully, unbelievably included in the kingdom by the grace of God. But, you know, perhaps there is a third type of person. We've got this slightly strange twist at the end of this story in verse 11. So we've got the king coming in to see his guests and he noticed there's there's a man there who's not wearing wedding clothes. And he has this little dialogue with this man and asks him why he's not wearing wedding clothes and the man's got nothing to say. And so this man is unceremoniously booted out of the wedding into the darkness. Many people suggest that at the time of Jesus, it was a custom for the host of a wedding to provide some kind of garment for the guests to put on over their outside, ordinary, everyday, dirty clothes. But even if that wasn't the case, it was clearly expected at this wedding that these guests guests should all have been wearing the proper attire for a royal wedding. That this man wasn't adhering to the dress code suggested that either he'd refused the robe that he'd been offered upon entry or he hadn't bothered to go home and get changed before he came to the wedding 
This man wanted to enjoy all the king's blessings, all the benefits of being at his feast. But he did not want to show any respect to the king or to his son. This man wanted to come to the wedding, but on his own terms, not on the terms of the one who was kind enough and gracious enough to invite him. We learn from this a very important lesson, a vital lesson for the church today. I want to ask you a question. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ inclusive? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ inclusive? Well, this parable teaches us, reminds us, that yes, absolutely it is inclusive in that the gospel goes out to everyone and anyone and anyone who will listen, anyone who will respond in faith, anyone who will come to the Lord can receive its blessings without exception. Moral people, so-called good people, bad people, people from every nation, all people are welcome to come. And the gospel goes out to them, freely offered to them. Is the gospel inclusive? Yes, it is in that, in that regard. But no, it isn't in a very important way. Because if anyone tries to enter the kingdom or wants to enter the kingdom on their terms rather than God's terms, they will find themselves excluded. What are the conditions for entering the kingdom? What do the wedding garments, the wedding clothes in the story symbolize? Well, I actually did a little study on this. There are so many places in the Bible where this idea of being clothed in something, this imagery, this symbolism is used. In Zechariah, well, we go back to Adam and Eve, don't we? When Adam and Eve were naked, God clothed them in animal skins. That's the first instance in the Bible where people need to be clothed and God clothes them to cover up their, their shame. I haven't got a lot of time to look into this, but if you want to look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, it's a very famous passage here about Joshua, the high priest, who in a very ceremonial sense is wearing filthy clothes. And God commands that clean robes be put on him. And God says, see, I've taken away your sin and I'll put fine garments on you. So we get this picture, don't we, of this man who is filthy in his sin, symbolized by filthy clothes and God providing clean garments to cover over his sin, to remove his sin. In Isaiah 61 verse 10, there's this very psalm-like um, exaltation where he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And if we look in the book of Revelation in particular, there are many instances in Revelation where this imagery of people wearing clean clothes, white clothes, is used to show, to symbolize the purity of the people of God. For example, in chapter 3, verse 18, Revelation, where God urges Christians to buy white clothes to cover up their shameful nakedness. In chapter 6, verse 11, the martyrs, those that have been slain, are given a white robe to wear. 
In chapter 7, verse 9, I've already talked about it, the great multitude from all nations, interestingly, are given, well, they're, they're wearing white robes. In chapter 19, verse 14, the armies of heaven ride out, once again, wearing fine linen. Fine linen is a costly material, a priestly material, white and clean. And in chapter 19, verse 7, very interesting, the wedding of the Lamb is announced. You can look it up. With the bride having made herself ready, having been given fine linen, bright and clean to wear. And it says also, fine linen stands for the righteous acts or the righteous deeds of the saints. So this idea of being clothed by God is a very old one that goes right back in the Bible. The picture is of God finding people in their sinful state, not fit, not worthy to stand in his presence because of their sin. And God clothing them, and making them presentable, making them acceptable to stand in his presence and enter his kingdom. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3 where he talks about them having been clothed with Christ. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, when you trust in him, You can picture it as God giving you a clean garment, the garment of righteousness, the robe of salvation, or vice versa, being placed upon you. If you are not found wearing a robe, a metaphorical robe like that, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Because only those that are being cleansed by the blood of Jesus, who put their faith and trust in him, are cleansed of their sin and declared righteous in the sight of God. So I think the picture of the robe is a picture of justification, of being declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Christ. You come to him filthy and he cleanses you and he gives you a clean status, a righteous status in his sight, symbolised by this robe being placed upon you. But of course, it doesn't just end with righteousness being imputed to you. It doesn't just end with you being declared righteous because those that God declares righteous, he also makes righteous. He imparts righteousness to them. We read, didn't we, in last week's parable that God will give his kingdom to those that bear its fruit. In Revelation 19 again, I remind you what it says. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The guest without the wedding clothes would have stood out like a sore thumb at the wedding. It would have been horribly out of place. So are people who claim to be Christians, who want to be part of the kingdom, but live impure, unholy, unrighteous lives. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. He says this, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he he goes on to list a variety of sins. Do not be deceived. These people will not enter the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So this is a similar picture. You've got these people that were previously living in all kinds of sin, just like all the rest of us. Imagine these people dressed in their filthy rags of sin. They can't enter the kingdom like that. 
Jesus Christ does a work in them. He washes them spiritually. He sanctifies them. He sets them apart. He justifies them. He declares them righteous. These people are not just declared righteous. Their hearts are changed on the inside. The Holy Spirit dwells within them. They've been given righteous hearts, hearts that long to obey God, hearts that will bring fruit for the gospel, hearts that will bring about righteous acts, which is like the fine linen. These people have been fitted for glory. They're no longer adulterous. They're no longer fornicators. They're no longer sinners. They've turned away from that. They've repented. Their hearts have been changed. And God has made them worthy. He's made them fit to be part of his kingdom, to take their place at the banquet. So just to to recap, I believe the robe, the garment, it's a picture of the imputed righteousness of Christ that anyone who believes in him receives by grace. But it's also a picture of the quality of a Christian life, a true Christian who's truly born again by the Spirit, bearing fruit for the kingdom, loving the Lord Jesus, wanting to do his will, not perfectly, of course, but as as a pattern of life, showing the fruit of righteousness. These people show themselves fit to be included in the kingdom. There is a warning here. The invitation goes out to all people. But everyone who, who would come must come on God's terms. There's a warning here for anybody that thinks that people can be saved without faith in Christ. And you'll, you'll find many that believe that, even some professing Christians, who think that it doesn't really matter if people are not Christians. If they're good people, God will receive them. It doesn't matter how moral people may be. If you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will never enter the kingdom. If you say, I don't need to come, I don't need to put my faith in Christ, I'm a good person, I'll come in my own way. You're just like that person, that man at that feast, who said to the host, or to the host servants, when they handed him that robe, he said, no thank you, I'll come in the way I like, and I'll be okay. And the host would say, no, that's not how it works. I'm the host, I set the terms. I say you have to come in a certain way, you have to clothe yourself in this wedding garment. And so we should not think that people that are not believers, who have not clothed themselves in Christ, will enter the kingdom. Because they are showing contempt for God and a stubborn refusal to come on his terms. And there's also a warning here for those people that think that you can enter the kingdom without having evidence of a life that is pure, and righteous and holy. And once again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, which is impossible to achieve in this life. But without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be a measure of holiness. There needs to be evidence of a changed heart and a changed life and righteousness to prove that someone is a genuine Christian, that they've truly been born again, they believe in the Lord Jesus. And there are those that believe and teach others that you can be a Christian without any of these things, without repentance, without changing anything, without coming on God's terms. 
Dear friends, we cannot dictate to God how we come to him. It concerns me that many churches today are teaching what they call an inclusive gospel. They teach in in various ways that God accepts anyone without any conditions attached at all, that people, in fact, can choose how they come to God and God will accept them. So they, whether they actually say this or not, that, that what it boils down to is they say you can come to God without repentance. You can come just as you are. You can come to him and, and show no evidence of holiness in your life. And somehow that's okay, God will accept you. And you hear people say things like this, it doesn't really matter how you live or what you believe, God will meet you where you are. They talk about why it is the gate that leads to eternal life. We just want, want you to know that God loves you and things like that. And dear friends, this is not the biblical gospel. Of course, God meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. He changes us. There, there can be no entry into the kingdom without repentance, without accepting God and bowing the knee to him and showing respect to him. I think this may soon become the prevalent message in the church in this country in in days ahead in in what professes to be the church, this inclusive gospel. This may be the message that rings out most loudly. And this is a message the the world has no problem with because it's, it's friendly to the world. It says, come just as you are, pick and choose your own bespoke model of Christianity that suits you. You don't actually have to change anything in your life. You don't actually have to do the will of God. Just come along for the ride. Everything will be okay. But it's a false gospel that promises people that they can come without showing evidence of the righteousness of Christ. I don't know if you've heard this song which has been doing the rounds, this song, The UK Blessing. Very beautiful song and biblical words. But I have some misgivings about some aspects of this song, as do many Christians. And one person commented quite wisely, I think, on this song. He said, too many people have been trying to reconcile God to the UK rather than the other way around. Sadly, I think this is true. I think too often we've been saying to people as churches something which is not the true gospel. We should have been saying to people, this is the true and living God. This is the way of salvation he's given us. Repent and believe the good news. That's what Jesus was saying to people. What we've said in effect is this, that God, this is who we are as a people. And we quite like the way we are. We've got no problems with it. So you'll have to change to accept us the way we are. Of course, it's impossible for us to change God. So all we do is distort the image of God that we portray to people to suit our idea of what we want him to be. It says in verse 14, many are invited, but few are chosen. What a, what a powerful verse that is. The gospel goes out to everyone, and it's good news. Wonderful blessing. But not everyone wants God. Not everyone will receive that message. And there are those who want to be part of it but will not accept him on his terms. They have no repentance. 
no holiness, no desire to obey him. And if you were to say to them, you need to do these things, they would turn their backs on you and, and call you a, a legalist and a bigger or whatever for simply bringing the Bible to them. But those that do enter, those that do receive the message, are there because God has clothed them. They've accepted God's gracious provision of righteousness. They prove themselves to be among God's chosen people. And of course, those that come in a different way or those who want to come in without the the righteousness of Christ clothing them, those people will be very sadly excluded from the kingdom. It says that in Thessalonians, he will punish those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Days coming when the Lord will come to see his guests and those that do not have that covering of Christ. Though they may claim to be Christians, they will be ejected from the kingdom. You know what it says, though? I want to, I want to finish on a, on a happy note. Revelation 19, verse 9. It says this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I would add my own remark. Blessed are those who receive that invitation gladly and come. This picture is multifaceted, isn't it? In, in one sense, we are, we are the guests who are invited to the wedding. In one sense, we are the servants who go out and tell people to come in. And in one sense, we are the bride at the wedding supper. Of course, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the groom. But one day, dear friends, Christian person, you and I are going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb by grace. We don't deserve to be there. There's nothing in us that that qualifies us, only that God has worked in us to draw us, to to give us that robe of righteousness in Christ. this, This world is full of suffering, isn't it? Full of hardships and full of trial, full of disappointments, discouragements. At the moment, we're physically separated. We can't see each other. We can't meet together. We've lost loved ones. Some, some, some of you have lost dear Christian friends and family members, wives, husbands, that have gone on before you. And The good news is that one day we will all be there at that wedding supper, safe and secure in the kingdom, looking upon the face of our Lord Jesus Surrounded by those friends that have gone before, Les Hill, Mrs. Gates, people that we know and care about. We will be gathered together with our brothers and sisters, worshipping our Lord, enjoying the untold, beautiful blessings of being in his kingdom. What a joyous reunion that will be when we see our loved ones, we see our Lord Jesus. We worship him together in that glad and happy day. That's something to lift our heads in these difficult days. So, I think I've said enough today. This is the parable of the wedding banquet. Make sure you're at the wedding banquet. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you haven't done so. And if you're a professing Christian who is not showing any evidence of righteousness, then come to the Lord and ask him, 
to forgive you, to save you. So, I'll sign off now. I'll see you at the feast, if not before. God bless you all. We're going to sing our final hymn today, which is Wonderful, Merciful Saviour. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. Oh, yeah.